It's not a learning experience. I mean, life is. Every day we think we know something and we hopefully we keep ourselves open enough to learn something new. I try my best to stay open. I know you do too. And the more that comes into us, hopefully we can put it through whatever we do and bring something good back out to the world. Welcome to Passion to Power with your host, Michelle Zeitlin. She's a creative producer who quote-unquote wears many hats. She's also a talent and literary manager and founded the company Morzap Productions and Management. She develops people and projects across all media. Her guests encompass the gamut, from artists to authors, actors to activists. Please welcome Michelle Zeitlin, Passion to Power. Vincent Patterson, a.k.a. Vince, is a choreographer. He's also a director, a former actor, and he uses a lot of acting principles when he's working with dancers on the multitude of projects that he has done, including film and television, live stage, opera, industrials, commercials. And I had the privilege of working with Vince over a number of years. First, we were actors and peers hired together by director Mel Damsky. And I believe it was a Schlitz commercial. I was dancing on a bar. He was behind the bar as the bartender, not a ballet bar, mind you, but a set for a 1950s diner. And then years later, he hired me for projects, including Mervyn's commercials, Nike commercials with Joe Pitka, who is a top director. And we'll talk more about him later for industrials and music videos. And he's gone on to work with some iconic figures. And we're going to talk about his book, which is an autobiography and tells some really great stories and insights that every artist should hear. So enjoy this magnificent interview with Vince Patterson. And there's some bonus content at the end. In fact, Vince, during our conversation, talked about some people he felt he had mentored. So I reached out to a couple of these artists, Bonnie Story and Kevin Stay, and they share some thoughts. So stay tuned for this wonderful conversation with Vince Patterson by his book and take a listen to all these kernels of gold. Enjoy Passion to Power. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor and privilege to interview a good friend of mine, a colleague, a famous director of choreographer who's worked with just about everybody in Hollywood and internationally. And now he is an author of Icons and Instincts. And I had the pleasure of reading this while staring out into the water and skies of Eleuthera Bahamas. So I'm not going to lie. I was in paradise reading about Things that are so important to the world of the performing arts, to artists, to actors, to those going through career pathways on their yellow brick road to success. Vince, it is an extraordinary delight to see you on Zoom. I wish we were in person, but (laughs) what is your legacy? What is the most important thing to you? Why did you write this book, Vince? Well, I wrote the book for a few reasons. The first reason is people have always asked me over the years, what's it like working with these famous stars? What what are they like in real life, you know? And, you know, they're pretty much, the audience only hears what they're like through the news and news reports and stuff like this. And 
I've had so many incredible collaborative experiences with these amazing entertainers that I wanted to share what the process was like working with them and, and let the audiences in a little bit and their fans in to know what they're like when they're in a work environment. So that was one reason. The second reason I wanted to do it is because I felt that so many people, younger artists especially, they, they look at my career and they think, oh my God, you've had it, such an easy career and everything was falling into place for you so quickly and easily. And for the most part, percentage-wise, that's been very true. And I've been extremely grateful for all of that. But I also wanted to tell stories where it doesn't always happen like that and that everybody in the business hears many more no's than we do yeses. And to advise and urge and support young artists to keep on going, you know, believe in yourself, trust in your talent, work hard, stay focused, and keep on driving yourself towards your goal, being who you want to be, and listen wisely to what people say, but wisely. And the third reason is because choreographers need to be credited. They don't receive the credit they deserve, primarily because we have no union. And it is very important that people understand what choreographers do, how much we do on a film set or live theatrical set, and get people on their sides now. Get the established participants in the entertainment business and the electronic edge of the electronic industry to pay attention to us and to treat us as equals. So those are the three reasons I wrote the book. Brilliant. Well, I'm going to jump right into a couple pages that caught my eye. Early in the book, page 25, you talk about Around this time, Michael Jackson was embarking on his solo career, having been the front man of the Jackson 5 since he was five years old. His solo music video, Billie Jean, had great success. Bob Giraldi, who directed the commercial for the Broadway show Dreamgirls, was hired to direct Michael Jackson's second musical short film, Beat It. Mike never referred to his cinematic creations as music videos. He always called them short films. And then you go in to talk about Michael Peters had co-choreographed Dream Girls. Well, I worked with Michael Bennett, the creator of Dream Girls, on his very final, I don't know if you know this, his final Broadway show, Scandal. I was an original cast member. Oh, I didn't know that. I was 22 when I got that. So I used to have Michael Bennett and Michael Peters together in the room while we were rehearsing. <sighs> And I remember Michael Peters never counted. He was like, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> so Michael Peters had co-choreographed Dreamgirls, which led to Bob hiring him to choreograph Beat It. Peters met with Bob and Michael Jackson, then came by to tell me his sensational news. He was on cloud nine. And then you go on to talk about the world of shooting Beat It, how Beat It led to several other incredible collaborations. And then your journey working with Michael Peters, first as an associate choreographer, as an actor and assistant choreographer, and eventually getting a job that he didn't get the next time. So I would love for you to backtrack because I have had this experience as a director and as a choreographer where it's very painful, where you feel like you're mentoring someone, you give them an opportunity and then boom, your job swiped. It can feel like that even if it's not how it went down. I know you probably had experiences since you were so young back then, but now having an experience where you've mentored someone and they've gone on to be a powerful new choreographer and sometimes you just don't feel acknowledged. I would love for you to talk about this chain of command in the creative world because so many people don't know anything about it. And then 
you talked about what choreographers do. So many people think it's just about the steps. And it ain't about just the steps. It's the concepts. It's it's directing the cameras as much as the action in front of them. And very often the directors, even the Joe Pitkas, are going to step aside and say, Vince, set the shot up. You direct the dance, which you ultimately, of course, did on another movie we'll talk about with Bjork and ended up being pretty much the primary director of action, not just dance. You're telling stories with movement. So let's start with the Michael Peters experience and then let's draw all of those wonderful stories out of there because I think, honestly, if if anyone's going to interview it, someone like me who really knows the nitty gritty of the world of dance and choreography and this is what the general public does not know about. True. When Michael Peters and I first met each other as dancers, we danced together on some television shows for an amazing choreographer who you probably know, Lester Wilson. So that's how we became friends. And then what happened was Michael began to do a little choreography, not yet, but just minor things. And we began to teach at Roland Dupre, a studio that used to be here in LA that's unfortunately is gone like many of the great studios. He started teaching and I became his assistant in class. I left to tour the world with Shirley MacLaine, and when I came back, I had some money in my pocket for the first time in my life, and Michael was frustrated with wanting to be a choreographer, and I said, well, why don't we rent out Wildwood Dupre Studios for a couple hours every night, five nights a week, and you pick some people, and I'll pick some people, and we'll come together, and, and we'll be here for you. We'll be dancers, we'll be your clay, you'll be the sculptor, you find a choreographic language that you're happy with. And that's what we did. And it had an incredible group of dancers. Willie Goodson, Susie Lonergan, Maureen Jahan, Smith Wordies. I mean, it went on and on. Ten incredible dancers. Peter Tram. There were just amazing people who dropped in and out. Tony Fields. Incredible A-list of dancers. And we worked for several months, and Michael began to find his voice. And it was very, very exciting. And it was exciting for me to be his assistant. So... The first job that we actually did together was Beat It. And what happened was, as you mentioned, Bob Giraldi contacted him and said, hey, would you like to do this music video? He called it a music video that he was doing with Michael Jackson. And of course, Peters was ecstatic and called me up and said, you know, listen, you can't, I can't give you the gig. You have to audition. And I didn't mind doing that. I, I like to audition. And the truth is, the reason I think that I got that gig was, as I mentioned in the book, my background had been in acting, and I knew it was about gangs. And all the other male dancers came in in what we typically wore to class in the 80s, which was skin-tight neon-colored tank top and skin-tight dance pants with leg warmers up to your knees almost. And having been an actor, I came in dressed almost exactly as I looked in the in the short film beaded. In fact, those were all my clothes because I thought, well, let me come in as a character and let them see me as a character rather than a dancer. And I noticed when I came in the room, Michael Jackson said to Michael Peters, who's that guy? Who's that guy? I wasn't trying to be obvious. I was trying to do organically what was comfortable for me. And luckily I booked the gig. And I mean, I was ecstatic. So I worked with Michael Peters, who played the Ever Gang leader in that. He had the whole white outfit on. And so as best friends, we played opposite each other. And I assisted him on Beat It. And when Thriller came around, John Landis asked Michael Peters to again choreograph. And Michael Peters asked me to be his assistant. And this time, 
He said, you can be a dancing zombie. You don't have to audition anymore because he was holding the audition along with me as his assistant. And so we did that. And as an assistant choreographer, in case people don't know, what, what the role is, is you learn what the choreographer designs perfectly so that you can then put that choreography on the dancers, whether it's Michael Jackson, the lead dancer, or the corps de ballet, or whomever you're dancing with. But you're responsible for teaching them the rhythms and the precision of the movement and, and to be sure that everybody is completely comfortable with the movement that's being created. And because of that situation, you get to spend a little bit more intimate time with the star, so to speak. And so I did get to spend more intimate time with Michael Jackson and answer his questions and make him feel comfortable because he was always very, very shy and very hesitant to be with people, not because he, he was a snob by any means. He was the sweetest, sweetest human being. He was just super shy. So I would get him out and get him involved with the dancers and make him have a happier experience. So Michael Peters continued to work with him. I think Michael Peters was involved in the Pepsi commercial where Michael Jackson burnt his head, although that had nothing to do with Michael Peters. But I think it left some kind of bad taste in Michael Jackson's mouth. And also later on, as I began to work with Michael, I realized that he was a little bit, I guess I could say resentful of the fact that Michael Peters wore all white in the video beat it. I think that Michael Jackson felt that Michael Peters was trying to take the attention away which he probably wisely was, but I didn't put Michael Jackson. I didn't put bottom him. He put that up on that. So the next big project he wanted to do here in LA was Smooth Criminal. And I was sitting at home one night and I got a call and it was this voice and he said, Hi, is Vincent there? And I said, Yeah, who's calling? And he said, It's Michael Jackson. I said, It's not Michael Jackson. Who's calling me? No, it's Michael Jackson. I said, Listen, if you don't Tell me who this is. I'm going to effing hang up the phone. And he goes, no, Vincent, this is Michael Jackson. And I said, oh, my God, Michael, I'm so sorry. I just used the F word. But anyway, he called me to a sound studio where he was putting his new album together. And he played a tiny little bit of Smooth Criminal that he had. He only had a couple of words here and there. Annie, are you okay? And you've been hit by a Smooth Criminal. And we sat and talked for about 45 minutes. He played the song several times. And we just grooved on it. And... He asked me what I thought of it. I told him it sounded great. And when I left, he gave me one of those things that people don't know what they are anymore, the cassettes. But I said, what do you want me to do, Mike? You want me to dance in, in this? He said, no, I want you to take it. I want you to let the music tell you what it wants to be. I want you to conceive it, choreograph it, and direct it. Michelle, I didn't know what to do with myself. I mean, I had choreographed a few small things, but not Michael Jackson. My God. And at this point, after Beat It and Thriller, I mean, he was like number one in the world. And I thought, oh my God. But more incredible than those experiences was this other voice that came to me that said, what are you going to say to Michael Peters, who was my best friend? And I just had to be honest. I'm a pretty honest man. I try to be honest in my life. And I called him up and I said, listen, I just need to tell you that Michael Jackson asked me if I would choreograph his next project. And... Michael Peters, my dear friend, <laughs> accused me of undercutting his rate, which I hadn't even spoken about money, and trying to take his jobs away. And it devastated me, Michelle. He stopped talking to me for several years. And then what happened was he got AIDS. 
and he invited me to go to dinner and I hope I don't get too emotional here, but tell me that he had AIDS and I became a group of supportive friends, dancers and other friends who then took him to doctors and, and got him food when he needed it. And, 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 and when he passed away, I was the last person to see him and he called me into, this is hard. He called me into the bedroom and he just told me how much he loved me. And, and he also told me that Michael Jackson had called him that morning and, and told him that he was very respectful and, and, and grateful for everything that Michael Peters had done for him. So, you know, Michael Peters was, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. He was as brilliant as he was. He was also difficult. And it's funny, you know, you and I had a little conversation about choreographers and their attitude on a set. And, you know, I thought about it a lot. And I realized that my personality is not like a lot of choreographers who have been in charge of projects that I danced on. And I grew up learning from these choreographers how you conduct a set. And 99% of them were dictators. And that was just kind of what I learned, you know. So it took me a little while after working as a choreographer to realize I didn't have to do that to have my own power on a set, you know. I could just be myself and present me and who I am and and not bring on all those years of what I had learned, bad habits, you know. And so this is kind of the way the hierarchy works. You spoke about me. I'm a little bit different in that way. I have trained a lot of assistants, people who I absolutely adore and love, Smith Wordies, Bonnie Story, and have urged them. And I'm so happy now Smith has passed on, but Bonnie has done so well. I pushed her out of the nest and you know, and said, go, girl, do it, do it. And she's won Emmys, and I I'm just so proud of her, you know, and, and, and also proud that she's taken some of the things that I've taught her, like bringing acting exercises into a dance world. And for her, she said it's just been so rewarding because it's really made her dancers better dancers, better performers by just bringing in a little bit of the acting world. So I think I kind of answered some of your question. I know you I went on a little Marshall roller coaster there for a minute, but you know, I, I feel things deeply sometimes. And Michael Peters was a very important person in my life. There was interesting passages in your book because you really infused a lot of your personal life with your professional life, which you kind of have to in an autobiography, right? You you want to show, well, yeah, there were these mythic, amazing, iconic performers and celebrities I got to work with, but this is where it came from. And this is why I was chosen or why I did what I did on these sets, you know? And I thought it was interesting because you talked a lot about anger issues, especially with your dad, you know? I believe there was Polish heritage, correct? Mm -hmm. Because you had some funny moments where you talked with Joe Pitka and said something about being a Polak, and I Talking to Joe and calling him a Polak, but <laughs> I guess it's like Jewish jokes, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Jackie Mason could make the best one. <laughs> My point being that you know you dealt you dealt with some pretty harsh, harsh background. You were raised in a background where you know talk about pulling up by the bootstraps, and there was a right and there was a wrong, and there was some hitting and you know, what was allowed back then in terms of like pulling on a belt or slapping your kids, which now is considered just criminal, you know? So I always yeah. 
trying to look at things within the context. And that's why I think this book, I know you were so intent on me reading it from cover to cover, not just pulling up what I'd heard about it. Of course, I, I had had an early read because I was lucky enough to know a little bit about the book at the very early. I, I do think that that was interesting and it did color some of our conversation about how people rule or roost on a set. Yeah. Dictatorship. And it really came out in how you worked much later with this European director shooting that movie on a train, if you could kind of break into your experience working with Bjork. Absolutely. It's a learning experience. I mean, life is. Every day we think we know something and we hopefully we keep ourselves open enough to learn something new. I try my best to stay open. I know you do too. And the more that comes into us, hopefully we can put it through whatever we do and bring something good back out to the world. I learned so much from people like Joe Pitka and I've always been a sponge, as I know you have too, you know. Those of us who sit in the background and we get it hired on a job as a dancer, but we're not just there as a dancer. We sit and we watch, what does the DP do? How does he shoot? What is the director doing? How does he talk to people? What does this person do? What does this person do? So that we learn, so that we're prepared. This is another thing that I want to talk that I talk about a lot in the book. Be prepared, you know. If you're a dancer, take a voice class, take an acting class. You never know when the next opportunity is going to be there. You never know what's around the corner. You never know. You could be auditioned for a role as a dancer, and the director comes up to you and says, "Hey, do you sing? Or do you?" Let me give you something to read here because I've got a part. I'm looking for somebody. If you have no idea how to even look at a script and say something back, you just lost an amazing opportunity. So do learn. But I'm saying this because when I was asked by Lars von Trier to do Dancer in the Dark, I came on as a choreographer, only as a choreographer. And it was an incredible experience for me, Michelle, because I started doing that, working with Bjork and, and the dancers in, in Denmark. And... I was waiting for him to hire this older dancer. I was much younger at the time. It was about 20 years ago. And he was looking for somebody in their 70s or 80s to run this little theater. And I was I had worked with Bjork already, and we were ready to shoot in three days. And I said, Lars, when are we going to get this actor? And he said, Vincent, I found you. I said, great, man. When do I work with him? And he said, oh, I'm going to introduce you right now. He puts his arm around me. He walks me over to the and he goes, Vincent, here he is. And he said, Lars, I don't know, man. I stopped, I stopped acting a little man ago. And he goes, oh, I've been watching you. You, 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 you can, you're perfect for this role. I said, okay, all right. Uh, uh, okay. I read about it for a day, and then I said I would do it. And then Lars had this crazy idea that for the first time he would operate the one remote camera, I mean handheld camera that he would do all of the dialogue scenes with and he had never shot before. So this was a big step for him. But he had also decided that the dances would be done with 100 literally DV cameras that had just come out. And the idea was that he and I would, I would create the piece, we would see what it was like in the environment, and then he and I would walk through the environment and I would say, let's put a, 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 a camera up there. And he'd say, let's put a camera over here. Let's put a camera up here. And I'd say, let's put a camera down here. The idea being that in a very simplified version, all the cameras were connected to the same recorder. You pressed play, you pressed record, and all the cameras recorded at the same time. So 
from the beginning of the piece to the end of the piece was constantly covered in however long the piece was, three minutes, four minutes, seven minutes. Originally, the idea was that, so there would be no other setups. You never had to break down, change the cameras, relate, anything like that. It, we would shoot the song from beginning to end. So Lars said, you know, let's do this. And we did the first one and he was overwhelmed. And he turned to me at the end of it and he said, you're a director, you take over the hundred cameras. And I said, okay, why not? You know, to you all the things I had learned, Michelle. And, you know, I wound up dancing. Not dancing, choreographed. I did dance in it because I acted. So I acted, I danced, I choreographed, and I directed the hundred cameras. And that was an absolutely phenomenal experience. But again, the reason I'm telling this story is because had I not been like you, so observant on every project that we've worked on to see how the thing gets put together, I might have not been able to be prepared to do that. So it's a lesson in preparation and keeping your eyes and ears open every time in every situation in which you're being creative. Learn as much as you can. And I remember seeing that film and it was extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. So this was definitely one of my favorite parts about your book. Because I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in the fact you worked with Madonna and you worked with Shirley MacLaine and you worked with Barbara Mandrell. And I mean, just, just, it's like name dropping. <laughs> but for me, the process of <clears throat> is what's so inspiring and exciting and the nitty gritty and what I call kernels of gold, these stories, because if you've ever aspired to be a choreographer, even if you didn't know what one a choreographer did, these are the nitty gritty stories that inform you. And I was lucky enough, as I told you, to work with Michael Bennett, who was the first choreographer to get the created by credit mm. for live theater. And he nicknamed me Diva. And so, I mean, that there was like so much honor. I was like, it was a lot to bear to be. Oh. But it was with love. And it was very much like what you're saying, Vince. It was like, I watched everything. I watched how they made that way before Hamilton did it. Michael was doing it. And how, you know, Jennifer Holliday used to come in and watch rehearsals and I'd watch her. <laughs> the interaction between Michael Bennett and Michael Peters and the gang, 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 gang. And, and how Debbie Allen, when she worked on Fame, was also like a chicken with her head cut off. You know, she's a yeah. wine camera. She's a private camera. She's a wine camera. And it was, it was always extraordinary and how one balances a sense of confidence. Uh, you know, I mean, waking up every day, being an entrepreneur, I often have to talk myself through the morning because I have to create my day. It's not like a job where someone says, here's your agenda or, you know, you have right. to up. And certainly what you've had to do is make it up as you've gone along. No. <laughs> I mean, you turn the, and and that's another thing that people don't know. There's no like school where you go to school and learn how to be a choreographer. <laughs> <laughs> you may learn about dance, take dance history. All you may learn how to how to shoot film, how to pull focus. You can learn all of that in school, but nobody teaches you how to be a choreographer. That's absolutely right. All right, let's talk about Evita. I'm skeptical when I heard they were going to make a movie about Evita, especially based on the musical Evita, because I had the privilege of being in the musical Evita and I knew the score by a heart. 
I played the young mistress on stage. Oh. Yes. I helped a couple Lonnie Ackerman coach for her original audition when she first got cast in the and that Patti Lapone originated on Broadway. So I'm very close to the show. And so I was skeptical. But I really did like the movie very much. But I loved your stories. You paint this really wonderful backdrop about shooting in Europe and the people involved with the movie and then how Madonna, like, God, trying to shoot, playing. She's an icon and she's playing an icon, a historic icon. And sort of that convoluted experience, right? And the the trying to get near a star who's playing a star and and you were there trying to support and I'm sure being around Madonna ain't easy anyway. Right. Well, I would love for you to share some of the stories, but first I have to share a funny story. You're going to really appreciate this. So I got in touch with a girlfriend of mine I hadn't seen in a long time. Turns out she worked for you on that movie. Ariadne Villarreal was the dancer shooting in Europe. She is now a very, very successful producer. She ran you talked about APLA. She worked at Equity Fights Aids for years. And oh. I originally met Ariadne in Tokyo. And then she created a whole dance venture called Global Vibrations. And Michelle Asoff, myself, Jeff Amston, we all worked with her in London. Wow. And when she heard I was going to be interviewing you and that, you know, that you'd written this book, she goes, oh, I worked with Vince. I was one of his dancers in those big scenes. So while I'm reading your book, I'm thinking of our move, <laughs> you know, and she's originally Greek, but she looks Mediterranean. She got yeah. anywhere. Yeah. So I know you cast really for type because she would totally blend it. All right. Where do we want to start talking about Evita? Well, the funny thing was, you know, how destiny works. I was destined to do the movie. And because I had met with the first time it came around, it was supposed to be Glenn Karen was going to direct it. And he called me in and met with me as a choreographer, and then that didn't happen. Then the second time it was supposed to happen, it was with Oliver Stone. And Oliver Stone called me and did I want to choreograph the movie? And I, of course, I said yes. And then that didn't happen. So then the third one was Alan Parker. And, you know, they say the third time's a charm. So I thought, okay, yeah, this three times I've been asked to do this movie, I guess I'm supposed to do this movie. So I said yes. And, you know, I, I was blown away by Madonna's work in that film. Her devotion, her dedication to embodying that character was so powerful. She took incredible acting classes. She took, you know, I, I turned her into tango dancers, tango teachers. She took private tango classes. She came to Argentina early. She wanted to meet with people down there who knew Evita. She did all the homework that a Glenn Close or a Meryl Streep would do, you know. And I thought she was flawless in that film. And I was very disappointed that she was so overlooked by the Academy and not even nominated for Best Actress. She should have at least been nominated. It, it, she did an outstanding job. But the conflict on that you know, we talk about conflicts that happen, and this was a difficult one. Alan Parker at that time, and I don't mean to say before or after, but he was drinking a lot during that project. And he was also accustomed to being the star of his films. You think about the commitments, fame, you think about the things that he's done, and he was always the star. He didn't bring in big stars. He was the star. Well, all of a sudden, he was not the star. It was Madonna's movie. 
and he couldn't quite handle that. And, you know, as you said, was a handful working with Madonna. It's always a handful working with Madonna. Delightful, I have to say, but it is a handful. And, you know, she, she demands a lot of attention. She deserves a lot of attention. So because we'd had a history of working together on many projects prior to this, and she was very comfortable with me, whereas she wasn't that comfortable with Alan, and Alan was not comfortable with her. And so he was watching this relationship between she and me and seeing the relationship between her and him, and it wasn't working there, and it was working with me. And he somehow had gotten into his head that I was kind of on her side or something. It was very odd and confusing, and I was being kept out of dailies, and there were no production meetings. It was very vague and very strange, and... It, it, it was quite difficult. In fact, one time I, I had an audition, I had a rehearsal with a gentleman that he had cast. I was not included in any of the casting, except in England. When I got to England, I, I, Ariadne was one of the dancers, but I got to cast everybody in England. But I'm going to cast all the major dancers throughout the film. But the little simple parts, the, the, if there was one person who danced with Madonna alone and maybe they had a line of dialogue or something, Alan cast those people without me being there at all. So I never knew if they could move or anything. So I, I spent a whole afternoon with this one gentleman that was supposed to do almost a complete tango with with Madonna, and he couldn't move. He had no rhythm. I, literally, I mean, he, he he didn't have rhythm, and I could I worked with him for five hours, and at the end he still knew nothing, and I was devastated. I, what the heck's going to happen here? Madonna's not going to be able to dance with him. This won't work. So I had a conversation with Alan, and Alan accused me of trying to override his decisions on casting. And I said, Alan, you know, he said, I thought I was doing a favor, Vince. He was in Tango Argentina. Well, it turned out he was the stage manager of Tango Argentina. He wasn't a dancer. He wasn't a performer. He was the stage manager, you know? Which so, so relieved <laughs> to be relieved of that pressure, yeah. right? Well, I was the poor guy, you know? But anyway... Eventually, you know, I made it clear to Alan, you know, that, look, it, it, I'm not doing anything with Madonna except playing the game to get her to give you what you need for your film. You know, I mean, I'm here for you, Alan. I, you're the one who brought me onto the project, not Madonna. I, and, and as a choreographer, I'm here to fulfill your vision. That's why I'm here. Well, thankfully, that's all it took, really. And, you know, we made it clear and he apologized and but sometimes you know in this business we just need to stand up for ourselves and and not be taken advantage of and just lay it on the line and say this is the way it is and you know and, and i also told him i said look if you really don't want me here i'd love to do this movie but if i'm not the person for you then maybe you should bring somebody else in because this is your film and you need to have somebody that you believe in. Anyway, he said, "I'm I'm sorry, and 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 I was wrong, and please stay." And and it and I did, and it, we had a wonderful time, and I'm very proud of the work that we got to do. There's a, a a part of this book where you talk about pages later, after this dissonance that you experienced with him, where the whole crew is crying, watching dailies of the dance, and he finally gives you the you know, the attention. He did. It was beautiful. It was a scene where it was the, the after the death of Evita and the tango dancers are dancing intimately with one another. And I had, I had given them some acting lessons or acting exercises to do before I had told them that 
when they danced, I wanted them to not necessarily think of Evita because that was just kind of a general concept. I wanted them to dance the tango as a memorial to somebody in their life who had passed away, a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, even a pet, if it meant so much to them, because there were some children that were dancing the tango as well. And I told them that when that image left their mind to stop dancing, and even if their partner couldn't move, they had to stop and wait until the image came back in their minds. This was during the rehearsal, and then they would dance again. So Alan had never seen the rehearsals. He just saw just before he was about to shoot. And we shot in this beautiful old ballroom, one of the scenes, and the light was streaming through the windows. It was gorgeous, and that you could see the little specks of dust in the light. And and these two, the older couple in their 80s, and they're dancing the tango intimately, and and tears rolling down their faces. And 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 at the end, again, I get emotional. Sorry, but the the older gentleman came up to Alan and kissed his hand and said, "Thank you, thank you, Alan, for making this movie." And those were the dailies that Alan showed. And somebody said, oh, my God, Alan, people were crying in there. And they said, just beautiful. And Alan kindly said, this is not my work. This is Vincent's work. So, you know, everything wound up being great. Old is a new work. But sometimes, you know, we do. We just have to stand up for ourselves, you know. And we just have to say, no, you know, this is abusive, and I'm and and I am not doing something wrong. I'm doing something to help you. You're just not quite looking at it the right way. And but having that conversation is what what changed everything. How much of our work on a set is uh, taking care of egos? Oh my God, you know, fifty, sixty percent. Yeah, absolutely, Michelle. And trying to keep our own in check. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You've listed some of the most extraordinary directors, so th that's pretty cool. I mean, John Landis. Oliver Stone, Alan Parker, I mean, you worked with, you know, and had the opportunity to watch other people work, which informed your work. Eventually, you got to direct, choreograph, cast an incredible opera. You got to work in one of the most famous places in the world for opera, Austria. That was that. By the way, guys, I'm not going to be able to outline everything in this. <laughs> You're doing me one favor. You had this book co-written with Amy. Would you say her name? Yes, Amy Toff. I was directing a play of hers here for, in L.A., and there was a, um, a entry that was done about me called The Man Behind the Throne, and it was showing at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and Amy saw it and came up and said, you know, you really need to write a book. And I said, I'm not a writer, really. And she said, well, wait, first of all, you're a choreographer, so you're a writer. You take something that says, and then they danced, and then you create something. You're a writer. And, and I said, okay, look. When I traveled around the world working, I usually had to do it by myself and pick up an assistant someplace, and this was before social media. So I would write these diaries, and when I would come home, journals, and I would collate them and give them to 10 best friends and say, this is what I just did for the last three months. So I gave her a couple of those to read, and she said, you can write. And I said, well, if you team up with me, I'll do it, because she's a journalist and a screenwriter and a playwright, and, and so we did, and, and, and it was great. And so the book became a combination of examination of stories from the journals I had written over time, 
And for those experiences in which I had not written, we did interviews in which she asked me a lot of questions as a journalist. And what I loved about Amy is you can't tell the difference between what she brought in and what I brought in into the book. It, it, it's seamless, and I'm so proud of that. And, and I'm also happy that what I've gotten from many people is that they feel like when they read the book that they're sitting across the table from me and I'm actually talking to them. And, and that was something that we did intentionally. We wanted to keep the sentences a little shorter. We wanted to, it to be more like the way we talk. And, and I'm really pleased with that, Michelle. The tone of the book is terrific. You, you definitely reached your goal. Oh, thank you. It's got personal touch, but it's got personality and, you know, the insight it, and even your acknowledgments are very touching. I'm one of those literary agents that immediately goes to the acknowledgement page to make sure I've been thanked. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to acknowledge those people that helped you. And yeah. having repped two author dancer choreographers on their dance books you know, it was it was very meaningful to be acknowledged. So I appreciate the way you wrote your acknowledgments. You have a couple of photos in here with some people I'm like fan fangirling on page 145. Oh my God, Maurice Bejart, Lee uh, Jones, William Forsythe. I'm the hugest uh, fan. You know, I was a classical dancer, so yeah. You know, to work with William Forsythe was always a dream. I never got to, but watching, you know, Sylvie Guillaume do his ballet with her leg coming out of her ear. Oh, my God. So what was that event? Because you're like, it's like crazy. I know. He from Stuttgart. Who, what is this picture? It was the Monaco Dance Forum, and okay. I was invited to speak there. And I taught a class, bringing a lot of my work and talking and illustrating what I had done and a big Q&A. And then Carl Lagerfeld actually was the one who pulled us all together with his camera and said, come on, I just want to throw you guys in the room and take a picture. And that's how it happened. And I know to be in the, be in the company of those amazing people. And C.D. Leiber, who's on the end there, had just done the Alanis Morissette piece, you know, and did a gorgeous job with that. So it, it, I, I'm so just blessed to be in the company of that, the other amazing artists in that photograph. And that it was taken by Carl Lagerfeld. I mean, how cool. Right. Lagerfeld took a picture. Hey, it's a selfie. <laughs> and then also on this photo page, you have a picture of you and Joel Gray. You know, oh my God, talk about doing a. And the author of Cabaret. Right, so that, yeah, incredible. Joe Masteroff. Yeah, he's the author of the musical Cabaret. Right, so I want to just give us a little, give us a couple of sound bites from working on that incredible, iconic musical. I was, I, I had done Dancer in the Dark, and back at the end of the '90s, and I got a call to come to Berlin. There was a a, a gentleman who owned a, a Spiegel tent, which is a small tent that seats about 200 people, and it's called Spiegeltent, which Spiegel means mirror in German, and it's called that because the posts that hold the tent up are covered in mirrors. And so they asked me if I would be interested in choreographing cabaret, and I said, no, I wouldn't. I said, but I would be interested in directing and choreographing it. I said, this tent is so amazing that I know that I would never be fulfilled just choreographing, I would have to direct. 
And they said, well, we already have a director. And I said, well, good luck. Thank you. I, I wish you the best. I'm sure it's going to be a phenomenal show. And a couple of days later, I went back to LA. A couple of days later, they called me up and they said, would you direct it and choreograph it? And I said, absolutely, I would. So I had so much fun. First of all, it was in Berlin. It was the first time that, that the musical of Cabaret, which is set in Berlin, had ever been done in Berlin. It was done in a, in a tent from 1918, and so it was already, you had the feeling when you walked through the flaps of this tent that you were going back in time. I got to work with some of the most phenomenal actors, and I got to work with a woman who was basically kind of the Glenn Close of Germany, you know, and, and she played my Fraulein Kust. I, I had people from the Berliner Ensemble. I had one woman who was an understudy for Fraulein Kost had been, when she was a tiny little girl, five years old, blonde and blue eyes, in a whole group of singers that were singing for Hitler, Hitler had asked her to come up and sit on his lap and give him a kiss on the cheek. She said she remembered being a little girl and hearing the Nazi soldiers coming down the streets. They're marching through the night and how it scared her as a child. One of my other actors was someone who had been arrested before the wall came down because he tried to get over the wall his ex-girlfriend called and I drove him in, I drove him up to the police, and he was in jail for two years. So the people that were in this show were like the real characters in the, in, in, in the musical. It was phenomenal. Their makeup and, and, and dressing rooms were gypsy trailers, gypsy wagons that were out in the parking lot. It, was, it, it could not have been more incredible. So it was supposed to run for six months. It's now been running since 2004, minus the pandemic. It was running for nine to 10 months of the year. Now it runs for four months every summer from the beginning of June to the end of September, 18 years later. Yeah, so the longest running... Sh right? All in German. In German, yeah, it's all German, but th that's been fun. I've directed the opera in French. I've directed, I'm directing this brand new big musical in English, but I just directed a presentation in Dutch. So, you know, it's, who knows? I don't, it's a crazy world. I'm just glad I'm part of it. It is the ability to share these little kernels of gold because every artist has their own unique trajectory. And it's not like you go to medical school and then you're going to go, <laughs> you know, our, our lives are so creative. Oh yeah and how, how they curve around and our yellow brick road to success can be many, many different paths. So I love, this is the fun part of having a podcast that besides my life supporting other artists and actors and authors as a talent literary manager, I get to share because I get to reflect too on what it was like to be an artist myself. Yeah. All of the challenges and, and you know, and, and to be reminded what a special career we have, what a special life we have. Absolutely. And you're still an artist, not when you were an artist, you're still an artist. This is an art right here. I mean, to, to do to do the incredible podcast that you do, Michelle, that's art, you know, I mean, it's just moving from, it's, it's funny, I was saying to some kids the other day that I did a seminar with, you know, you never know exactly where life's taking you. Just keep working at it. Keep working. You know, you might think you want to be a dancer, but that doesn't wind up happening and you wind up being an administrator of a dance company. Who knows, you know? But you're an artist, girl. Don't don't say when you were an artist. Come on, Michelle. <laughs> uh, thank you. I guess, you know, in my 12th life, you know, part cat, part dancer. 
<laughs> I'm honored and thrilled to wrap up this conversation with you. And I know that people around the world, just to give you a tiny little microcosm of who listens, we have people UK to LA, Australia, some people that may know you in Berlin and and Austria are probably listening because I have also, like yourself, educated in London and in Bristol and different areas. We have communities that are always excited to hear about the next podcast. And, you know, we have some people in the university in the UK are so thrilled to hear about what it's like to work in Hollywood and the fact that you really have this great coverage of what Hollywood really is, you know, and what a set really is and what Broadway really is. And and theater is everywhere. And especially now in our world of technology, we are so connected through the universe and in ways that we weren't in our early days. We had to watch movies or pull pictures out of magazines. Now you can watch dance on TikTok and you can get you know, William Forsyth all day long on <laughs> those people that want to learn more about Vincent can read this book. You can follow him. Are you on Instagram? Can people follow you? I am V L P L A. My initials Los Angeles. V L P L A. And uh, those of you who like Paul Abdul, you Paulette has a nice little quote here. Vincent Patterson's ingenious style of dance captivated millions of people. Steven Spielberg, he's done a few things. <laughs> he feels surely is the best music video ever made. And that's a really touching moment in the book. And I love Mike Nichols' relationship with you on the birdcage. I look oh. and think how wonderful it is and how much you've given me and the picture. And that was working with Robin Williams in the birdcage. So those of you that want a profound education will read the book. Those of you that want some kernels of gold, Vincent, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Vince Patterson mentions working with Bonnie's story, and she gives him a lot of credit for putting her on a path to success. And now she has become a very successful choreographer in her own right. She remembers working with Vince in the studio with Jackie and Bill Landrum, who would teach class, and then they would get together and they would piece together early movement. And Vince would try things out on her body. And she ended up being his associate and his assistant choreographer on a multitude of projects, including commercials, music videos, and even working with Cirque du Soleil. And in her own right, she's gone on to work with Cirque du Soleil on multiple projects. She just wrapped a project with Kevin Costner and actually had to teach him choreography via Zoom and said he was very, very charming. She's worked on five seasons of So You Think You Can Dance, and she got to work with the world-famous composer Hans Zimmer on a live show. If you want to know more about Bonnie's story, you can look her up. She's an incredible dancer, originally from Utah, now works and lives in Las Vegas, and has two daughters who are also dancers. Bonnie's story says thank you, Vince, for that leg up. Hi, I'm Kevin Stay, and I've worked with Vince since 1989 as a dancer, an assistant choreographer, and even as a musical artist as That Rogue Romeo when he directed my music video, Domino. Vince took me under his wing as an assistant on absolute pure faith. I had only worked with him once on a Pepsi commercial for Cheyenne, and I auditioned for him once for Diana Ross. You know, he was extraordinarily patient with me and generous, and I was young and eager, and I've always wanted to make him proud. But until I met him, 
I had been dancing really mainly just to show off. And as we worked, it became very clear that dance wasn't just about the body, but really about the heart. You know, when after we'd learned the choreography, the cleaning process often involved like detailed descriptions of why we were doing a particular movement and the emotional weight that infused each step. He would explain and talk us through basically the conversation that each dance was. Vince also has a few favorite directions that I've heard him repeat many, many times over the years that are usually given to actors. And one is to come back the next day having written out our own backstory to whatever character we're embodying for that dance and bringing that life with us as we approach it. And another is to, when it's appropriate, is to tell us to think of a dirty little sexy secret. No, dirtier, filthy, filthy. That one that almost makes you blush, that makes your heart race faster. And then he waits, he waits until he can see it sparkle through your eyes and then says, there, he points it out. <laughs> there, that one, that one. And you'll hear him giggle every time. And in that moment, <laughs> we always understand that we're dancing from the groin, from the crotch, from the id, from raw truth uh, that is unique to each of us. His preparation for each day was very thorough and always focused on message, you know, over cleaning the counts. But whatever steps we were locked in, always stayed true to the communication. He always wanted to know where does the eye go? What is the audience experience and where are they going as we dance? Thanks very much for listening to this episode, and please share all the episodes with your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your ratings and comments on Apple Podcasts and on social media. If you'd like more information about our programs and our special people and projects, please access www.morezap.com, More Zap Productions for Talent and Literary. And if you'd like to book a special one-on-one coaching or a group clinic or workshop, please access passion-power.com and you can fill out our form there and make a request. Thanks again.